All right, well, first things first, I just want you to know, and if you've been with me for a while, you already know this, I will watch the debate for you tonight. I will take it. I will deal with it. I will break it down. I will have it for you tomorrow. Feel free to be with your family. Feel free to go out, do things, have a life. I will I will handle this for you. I have this. This is going to be so boring, I think. I mean, what do these people do, right? They're the other Republicans. They're the other candidates. Uh, the guy that's running away with this thing isn't going to be there. So what do you do if you're one of the other Republicans in Simi Valley, California tonight at the Reagan Library? You're at the Reagan Library. And, and when people hear that, they think of Reagan, and then they look at you. I mean, what do you do? Do they audition to be a better opponent for Sleepy Joe? Because right now, that isn't even a thing. The, the, it's pretty clear that Sleepy Joe is in free fall. So... Running against him right now isn't even one of the most important things you can do if you're a prospective Republican candidate. Or do you try to take down Trump? Or do you do kind of what Cruz did last time, or not last time, but when when he was running against Trump in 2016, where you're his wingman on the issues, but you're also letting people know, hey, if he stumbles, I'm here. It's a tough thing. I don't know what these these other Republicans, the other Republicans, are going to do. The younger ones can say, "Well, we're we're laying the foundation to run in the future, like DeSantis and Ramaswamy and Haley." But I don't know what the you know, like what what is the Mike Pence path forward here? It's got to be this time, right? What is Chris Christie doing? What are you doing here? Are you going to watch this thing tonight? And if so, why? And that's our question on today's River City Oral Surgery JR poll. I know we've been saying for a while that, oh, well, you got to let it play out. Nobody's voted yet. There hasn't been a primary yet. But, look, we're letting it play out. It's playing out. He's, he's, the guy's under 119 indictments or whatever it is, and he keeps getting a bigger and bigger lead. And I think we need a little Trump 101 here. So forgive me if you already know this, but I feel like this needs to be said. The biggest thing they they misunderstand about Trump, and I hear media people say this all the time, they look at the people at the rallies, they look at his supporters, they, they and, and they go, well, why? Don't, don't these people realize he doesn't care about them? Don't these people realize he's this? Don't these people realize he's that? They think that you're supporting him in ignorance. They think that you're supporting Trump in ignorance, and they don't realize that you're supporting Trump knowing you know what Trump is, you know who he is. You're not supporting him because you don't know. You're supporting him because you do know. The thing that I think panicked the elites about Trump in the beginning was not, he's not some kind of conservative. He's not. He's a big government guy. He's a big spending guy. He's, he's a middle of the road. Find, find a path. I don't have an ideology. You know, you hear what he's saying about abortion. Let's be reasonable here, people. The thing that freaked them out about Trump was that he's not an outsider, he's an insider. It's easy to forget now because everybody involved has tried very hard to make you forget 
They've 86 all the evidence. But Trump was an insider. He partied with these people. He did business with these people. He took pictures with these people. They were at his wedding. He was at their weddings. He was constantly on CNN and MSNBC. And they'd interviewed Donald Trump, businessman Donald Trump. And he was saying all the stuff about immigration and trade and campaign reform and China and taxes. And they were like, wow, this is so refreshing. He's so different. Interesting. Be interesting to see him run for president someday. That's what they said over and over again. Katie Couric, you said it. Oprah, you said it. Joe Scarborough, you said it. Larry King. It wasn't his politics. He was one of them. They knew him. They thought, wouldn't it be cool if somebody we know becomes president? And then 2015 came along. And he launched his actual campaign. He had never really run for president. He'd flirted with it, but he finally started actually running. And he, he gave that first speech at Trump Tower. And this is where he did the unthinkable. This is where he did the unthinkable. He started to tell their secrets. Remember the movie Fight Club? What's the first rule of Fight Club? He broke the first rule of Fight Club. He didn't just pull the curtain back. He ripped the curtain down. And so now we're talking about how political parties work and donations and who owes who and tax laws and corporate media. And a guy that knew how to explain why we do the stupid things we do as a country started explaining it. And the elites don't like that because they want to be the ones to explain it. And so this was the great fear they had. Not that there would be a conservative or an outsider, but that there would be one of their own who could tell things only they know. If he had been an outsider, they would have mocked him and they would have opposed him. But the way they're opposing him, the way they're going after him, and this is one of the reasons you are with him, because you are seeing how they're going after him and who's going after him, that's because he was one of theirs. And it's not only against him, it's a warning to the rest of their little cadre, don't any of you ever try this. Don't any of you get any ideas. If you haven't figured it out yet, from the Epstein scandal to the Ivy League admissions scandal, the one thing you cannot do is puncture the phoniness or, or spoil the racket that these beautiful people have going. And so now they're freaking out because he looks unstoppable again. By the way, by the way, this Senator Menendez, Bob Menendez, I mean, <laughs> look, I, I, I realize it looks bad. Bars of gold and envelopes stuffed with cash. But I kind of get a little whiff of this from him. Like, I, I think the reason the professional Pauls and the political class are lining up to denounce him is because, again, they're a little bit worried, like, well, if this guy is, if he's on his way out the door, if he's got nothing to lose, if he and his uh, crazy wife are going to go to prison, what, what would stop them from ruining everybody else's good time? Like, what if he decided to start talking? Imagine the bodies he knows and where they're buried, right? I mean, he's been in politics a long time. The people denouncing him have known, they must have known. He was a crook. So as they all rushed to the microphones to demand his resignation, 
I think that's the same thing. Somebody who could ruin their racket must be taken down. They had no trouble with his gold bars and his cash until we found out about it. It didn't offend them. It didn't, but they made him the chairman of the most prestigious committee in the Senate. Come on. 210-599-5555. Trump will be in Michigan tonight instead of at the debate. Joe Biden went to Michigan yesterday. The president flew on Air Force One to spend 12 minutes. Somebody timed it. 12 minutes on the picket lines with the UAW. And while he was on the picket lines, he actually said that he has been picketing with the UAW since 1973. I joked yesterday that he would pretend to be a... Do you remember this, Don? I I joked that he would pretend to be a guy that had worked in a car factory. I was joking. He actually said, "I I have been on the picket lines since 1973, but then bizarrely he said that this is the first time I've ever done it in person. I don't know what that means, because I think the only way to be on a picket line is to be on a picket line. CNN looked it up and they said, well, yeah, he did show up at a UAW picket line in 2019. He was out of office at the time. But he's not been, he's not walked the picket lines before. He's never been a member of the UAW. I mean, it's, I was joking, and he actually went ahead and told that lie, too. Um, so, so, I mean, you can't, I, he's, he's keeping, Joe Biden is keeping ahead of my ability to make fun of him. And see, that's the other thing. When we talk about people supporting Trump, they're not just supporting Trump. They're angry and they're disgusted that this guy is our president, that this is that we've allowed this to happen, that we've hired somebody to run the greatest company ever, in, ever created, the greatest product ever created. Uh, the United States is the all-time greatest human enterprise, and we've hired a dummy. And... People know that they can do better than this. So these polls that show Trump leading him are are about many things. I want to play this for you. This is from 60 Minutes. Um, They did a piece about Ukraine, and they had a reporter over there embedded with the Ukrainian troops and speaking with Ukrainian civilians. And I think the gist of the piece was really to say, hey, America, you're... You're supporting some really great people and a really great country. And so don't feel bad about the billions that we're sending Ukraine, because these are some terrific people. You'd, you'd really like these Ukrainians if you knew them. But I want to play this piece for you, because this is, this is very telling. Uh, they, they actually said, the reporter actually says this. Cut number eight. American taxpayers are financing more than just weapons. We discovered the U.S. government's buying seeds and fertilizer for Ukrainian farmers and covering the salaries of Ukraine's first responders, all 57,000 of them. That includes the team that trains this rescue dog named Joy to comb through the wreckage of Russian strikes looking for survivors. And the U.S. also funds the divers, who we saw clearing unexploded ammunition from the country's rivers to make them safe again for swimming and fishing. Russia's invasion shrank Ukraine's economy by about a third, 
We were surprised to find that to keep it afloat, the US government is subsidizing small businesses. Super. Like Tatiana Abramova's knitwear company. These are Ukrainian towns. Yeah. That's Kiev, I recognize. Yeah. Yes. yeah. <laughs> Especially in the condition of war, we have to walk. We have to pay taxes, we have to pay wage, salary to our employees, we have to work. Don't stop. Did you get all that? We're, we're planting their fields, we're paying all their first responders, all of them. We are um, subsidizing their small businesses. The only thing I think they left out was, are we forgiving their student loans? Are we, we if, we're, if we're not, we really should be. See... Somebody, somebody get a message to Biden. We need to forgive all their student loans. We're not, we're not doing this for any U.S. state. We're not doing this for Maui. We're not doing this for any Americans. We're not doing this for border cities and counties. We're not doing this for the sanctuary cities that are crying their heads off right now. We're not doing all of this for anybody. You, is there even a Ukraine anymore? Is that even a country? It sounds like a, it sounds like a um, project of the Biden administration. And this is what I mean. This is where we're at right now. I mean, you, you can tell people all you want about threat to democracy and he's uh, dangerous and uh, documents in his bathroom, but this is the stuff. Hearing this is the stuff. People will carry this around. People who can't make ends meet, who can't put groceries on the table, who can't buy medicine for their kids, who are trying to figure out, do we need to... Do we need to move into an apartment because we can't afford to live in a house? And we're, we're doing what with Ukraine? By the way, it said that their economy had shrunk by a third. I would have thought much more. I mean, they're at war. I don't wish anything bad on them. Don't get me wrong. But they are in a war. And it sounds like we are, in every way we can, eliminating, alleviating obviating the facts of that like should there not be any setback or downside or price covering everything we have told them there is nothing you will have to worry about has anybody told you that i wonder how much people really understand about what we're doing in ukraine that that piece from 60 minutes is you think most people know that like, I think they have this idea that it's kind of like we we have all this military equipment on the shelf and we've sent some of it over there and it's being used against an enemy that is also an enemy of ours. And, and, and so what's the big deal? We're not at war. But then when you hear we're paying all their 57,000 first responders, we're subsidizing their businesses... We're planting their fields. We're, uh, you know, years ago I was driving one night to go work out, and I had an old car, and I hit a deer. And it was the only time that it ever happened to me. It was the first time it ever happened to me. It was a freaky thing. You, you think you'll, you think you know what that's going to be like, and it's really weird when it happens. I hit a deer, and I slammed on the brakes, and the deer ran off, wounded but still alive. And I'm in the middle of the road, and the front of the car is busted up. And I really, I was like, I don't know, what am I supposed to do here? You know. So anyway, I, I, the car was drivable. I kept going. I called the insurance company. 
they came out, they did the, the, um, what do they call it? The assessment or whatever they, whatever they call it, where they look at your car. This was before you could take pictures and put it on the app and all that. So they look at your car and they tell you we're going to, I knew it wasn't total. I knew it was repairable and, uh, it had like cracked the front end and damaged some of the hood and one of the fenders had a little kink in it. And, so it's telling me we're going to do this, 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 and this. It'll be so much money. Uh, and it was not an accident where it was not my fault, but it was also no one else's fault because there was no other vehicle involved. So um, they told me what they were going to do, and I, I guess I was a little surprised that that was all they were going to do. And the guy was nice about it, but he basically said, well, we're not, make, we're not going to make your car like new. We're just going to make it like it was before you hit the deer. I'm, I'm paraphrasing. Those are not the exact words he used. But in other words, I might have thought, well, I'm going to get like everything is going to be, you know, factory fresh. No. It's going to be like it was before you hit the deer. And I think that's what I would expect for Ukraine. Like, you, you, you're, in, you're in a war. I mean, I, I, I understand that you were invaded, but... It sounds to me like we're making them factory fresh. Like we're we're putting everything to pristine, like new. We'll take care of all your bills. We'll cover everything. We'll prop up all your businesses. Do you know how offensive that is to people that lost their businesses during COVID? To hear that it's a priority of the Biden administration to make sure that Ukrainian businesses are subsidized? I mean, that's insane. And that insanity is going to lead to political outcomes that the pundits can't explain. Like, well, how can people be for Biden, uh, be for Trump? Don't they know this? Don't they know that? These are insane times. People are looking for a shred, a glimmer of sanity, of hope. Trump has his faults. And there's a lot of things, I hear people project a lot of things onto Trump that he is not. And I could nitpick at those, and we could run those down and list them and argue about them, but I understand what people are responding to. We did better when he was president. We weren't doing this kind of craziness. People can remember that. They're not being asked to remember 40 years ago. It was just a few years ago. And I, I, I don't think this is complicated. When you hear and see what we are hearing and seeing as Americans. Uh, we welcome back to the show now in the KTSA Connecticut Quality Water Softeners line, um, a man who the last time we had him on uh, was a candidate opposing the re-election, uh, ultimately the successful re-election of San Antonio Mayor Ron Nirenberg. Now, uh, Republican businessman Chris Shukart is running for Bear County Commissioner. And uh, Chris Shukart, welcome back to the show. Good afternoon to you. Good afternoon, Jack. Thank you for having me back on. When I um, saw that you were running, uh, the first question I had about this was probably a question that other people will have as well. Um, you're running against another Republican. There are very few Republicans in Bear County politics. Uh, why? Well, after my experience with the mayor's race, you know, it, it, it really became clear to me 
on why we have so few Republicans in Bear County. It's because we don't have any Republicans providing an example of what actual conservative Republican leadership looks like in their elected uh, in their elected office. So when we go through uh, other areas and districts and precincts throughout Bear County, we have no examples to point to of success uh, to persuade people uh, to make a change and vote another way, or better yet, after looking at the mayoral results, even just to show up and vote. So you're running against Grant Moody, who won the the seat that was vacated by Trisha Berry when she tried to run for Bear County Judge and ultimately lost that race to Peter Sakai. Um, what is your issue with, or what are your issues with Grant Moody? Well, Trista Berry vacated that office uh, to run for county judge against Peter Sakai. Uh, and then the process being that Bear County GOP precinct chairs met, uh, I believe it was around July of 2022, uh, to select a Republican nominee for the November uh, uniform election of 2022. So from that result, we were given Grant Moody. Uh, he's never won a Republican primary. And after watching him and looking at his record over the past 10 months, I, I feel this time the voters need options and the voters uh, should get to choose Republican voters in a primary of who they want to actually represent them at precinct three. Mm-hmm. And as far what, as what are his you know, positions that you find objectionable as, as a, as a Republican? Well, for instance, you know, and just from an appearance standpoint, it, it boggles my mind why the decision we made, but you know, when you take a, 17% pay raise at a part-time government job, less than 10 months on the job. Uh, you know, it's kind of a slap in the face of the, the working men and women and taxpayers of the county who are, you know, being pummeled by inflation and property taxes and a litany of other costs. And, you know, and if you could see, if you, if you really delved into the, the absurdity of the process of people involved in the justification of how that pay quote unquote adjustment uh, plus an additional pay raise came about. Uh, I, I mean, I have to say it's the, uh, it's the antithesis to what the Republican Party is supposed to believe and, and, uh, and conduct themselves uh, these days. And, I mean, me personally, if I wanted the 17% pay raise, I would have to create millions of dollars in wealth through my business for other people before that money would trickle down mm-hmm. to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, his voting record shows that he voted over 98% of the time with his Democratic colleagues. Uh, at that point, why even have a Republican on the commission? Uh, you know, all he's done is facilitate their continued spending spree and, and their shenanigans. When we only have one seat, we don't need a compromiser. We need a fighter. Uh, mm-hmm. We've been compromising and having lived in Precinct 3 for 20-plus years of my life, I, I, I see the results in real time of what those compromises have gotten us. And then you know, finally, at the end of the day, Precinct 3 pays 50 cents of every dollar that Bear County collects in tax revenue, uh, yet we get the same equal share back as the other precincts who are more sparsely populated and paying around 12 to 13 cents of every one of those dollars. Uh, you know, I mean, that's essentially Robin Hood taxation. And, you know, when you have something like that, you know, I, I can't understand the political double talk of, claiming that you voted against the tax rate, but then you vote for a budget that raises 11% more property tax, uh, which we know the lion's share of that will come from Precinct 3. All right, we're talking with Chris Shukart right now at KTSA. He's running for Bear County Commissioners. Um, I know when you ran for mayor, and I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I seem to recall that when you ran for mayor, you mostly self-funded your um, 
campaign. Is that am I remembering that right? We spent around ninety three thousand. I spent uh, I put in about sixty to seventy of that. Okay. Are you anticipating self funding this race as well? I, I will self fund to the extent that we need to win. Uh, but this time we have we only campaigned for fifty days during the mayor's race. Uh, by the time we had all of our infrastructure and everything in place, we do we do mm-hmm. intend to undertake a greater fundraising effort. Yeah. I, I mean. I, I I like you, and I'm not trying to discourage you, but it, it's hard enough, as you alluded to at the beginning of the conversation, it's hard enough to get people interested in the mayor's race, and the turnout is abysmal for mayor and city council. Um, I I feel like far fewer people know about or think about uh, commissioner's court. How, how, how do you get traction on this? Or, or is it that you think maybe uh, having it not be an off-year election will be to your advantage? Well, the one benefit from being in the mayor's race is, you know, we've done polling uh, throughout the summer and, and a head-to-head contest right now with uh, likely Republican voters in Precinct 3, uh, we come out on top. So they know who you are. But I guess my question is, how do you get people to care about commissioner's court? And, and how, do you, how do you explain to people even what they do? Because, again, the, the city council's in the news every night. Uh, they, they deal with hot-button social issues, at least this council does. Um Commissioner's court is is a sleepier political, you know, landscape. Well, I, I agree. It is sleepier and it has flown under the radar, but you know, the, just the same as it was how eye-opening it was during the mayor's race for me to get a glimpse behind the curtains of what's going on at the city council level. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, the more you look into what's going on at the county level, uh, they almost might pull ahead of the, uh, of the city council. Um, and so, you know, I, this time we have more time, uh, we have more resources. Uh, you know, the biggest thing is just going to be knocking on doors. Uh, mm-hmm. we, we, we plan to hit in the high teens uh, as far as the number of doors that we hit and just educate people on, you know, I mean, everyone seems to have the same problem. We, everybody's scratching their head on when all this talk about property taxes, lowering property taxes is actually going to result in writing a smaller check the next year. Uh, you know, everybody has the same issue with crime. Uh, you know, some of the, the measures that have been touted and bragged about, you know, aren't going to be effective in the long run because so, so much of what goes on at the county and the city, you know, is, is distorted and the, the bureaucracy that is in charge and the recommendations that are made that most of our elected, elected officials just happily follow and take, uh, in large part, have led us to where we're at. Uh, so, you know, at, at the least, I hope I can get out and talk to and educate as many people as possible and, you know, tell them there are other ways of thinking. There are other solutions. Uh, there's been some great solutions uh, proposed by the constable in Precinct 3, who's another, uh, the only re- uh, elected Republican law enforcement official in the county, uh, that I think in the, in the long run would really benefit the, the precinct. Um, that's what we're hoping to go for. Mm-hmm. What would you say was the most important lesson you learned from the mayor uh, from the the campaign for mayor you know one thing i will say and i made i made this comment to someone earlier you know i i watched the way ron handled it uh time management being at there's a lot of events that request your presence that aren't that your time could be better spent Our, our our uh our time will be much better spent this go around all right chris shukart 
uh, running for Precinct 3 Bear County Commissioner, uh, having uh, run earlier this year uh, for Mayor of San Antonio. Uh, we'll stay in touch for sure. I hope you'll come back with us uh, again, but thanks for the time today. Yes, sir. Thank you for having me. Uh, I think it was last Thursday or Friday they had uh, President Zelensky address the Canadian Parliament. And as part of a very emotional presentation, the Speaker of the House of Commons introduced honored guests, and one of them who happened to be from the Speaker's parliamentary district, so he was very proud to have this man with them in the gallery, 98-year-old Yaroslav Hunka, who was introduced as a war hero who fought in World War II in the 1st Ukrainian Division. And everybody, yeah, woo standing ovation, all the leaders. Then it came out over the weekend that the 1st Ukrainian Division was also known as the Waffen-SS Division. And it was people that had signed up to fight under the command of the Nazis. Whoops. Yesterday, that parliamentary speaker, Anthony Rhoda is his name, resigned. He said, no one in this house is above any of us. I must step down as your speaker. I reiterate my profound regret for my error in recognizing an individual in the house during the joint address to parliament. Um, part of me wants to be impressed that people are like stepping up and taking responsibility, but uh, a bigger part of me, I won't say which part is which, um, just finds this symptomatic or emblematic of the stupidity and the oversimplification of everything. We are turning everything into black and white. We are turning everything into good versus evil. Here's somebody that once fought for Ukraine. Yay! Whoa, wait a minute. So all the Canadian politicians were angry at this Rota guy. Like, you put us in a really bad position. And I understand, I mean, you would think someone could have done a little homework, could have done a little research. How hard would it have been, right? Probably, probably 10 minutes on Google. Oh, wait a minute. We maybe we don't want to make this guy one of our superstars. But see, it was too good. Everybody in Canada, in the United States, in the EU, they are enjoying this Ukraine movement, way, this Ukraine moment, way too much. Facts cannot get in the way. We're having a, a restaging of the Roosevelt-Churchill alliance, and it's beautiful, and we love it. And and so that was bad enough today. Justin Trudeau came out, and listen to what he said. I want to roll in and out of this a little bit, Don. Cut number nine. In a few moments, I will address the House in front of all Canadians, in front of Jewish people here and around the world, and Ukrainians, to offer Parliament's unreserved apologies for what happened on Friday. The Speaker was solely responsible for the invitation and recognition of this man, and has wholly accepted right that responsibility and stepped down. This was a mistake that has deeply embarrassed Parliament Mm. and Canada. Mm. All of us who were in this House on Friday regret deeply having stood and clapped, even though we did so unaware of the context. Okay, hold on, hold on, hold on. 
um, it's not our fault. It's the guy that quits fault. We wouldn't have applauded him if we had known who he was. Isn't he basically saying that he's a trained seal? That when everybody stands to applaud, he does too, and we all do. And so we're not, we don't know who we're applauding. We just know this is a moment to applaud. It's like they're in a school play. What, what does a standing ovation mean if you're, if, you, if you're admitting, we really don't know who we're applauding for? All right, continue. It was a horrendous violation of the memory of the millions of people who died in the Holocaust, and it was deeply, deeply painful for Jewish people. Listen it also it. hurt Polish people, Roma people, mm -hmm. 2SLGBTQI oh, plus oh, oh, people. What? Wait, wait, hold, well, wait. Uh, wait a minute, wait a minute. So now the Holocaust is an LGBTQ event as well. He couldn't help himself, right? He had to tie it back in to current day politics. So basically, we're just going to name every group that has any grievance over anything right now. They were all hurt by this. All right, continue. Disabled people, racialized people, mm -hmm. and the many mm -hmm. millions who were targeted by the Nazi genocide. Mm -hmm. Every year, there are fewer and fewer Holocaust survivors to share firsthand the horrors of what they experienced. And it is therefore incumbent upon us all to ensure that no one ever forgets what happened. Why is he giving a lecture about how important it is to be faithful to history when this entire episode was unfaithful to history. Moreover, isn't the whole, you know, Ukraine is absolutely to be supported to the hilt. There isn't anything that is too much. No matter what we do, it's not enough. That thinking, that slippery slope, everybody's trying to out-virtue signal each other on Ukraine, is exactly how you get a moment like this. So the irony is... They all sound mealy-mouthed and apologetic. Political careers are slamming to a conclusion. But they didn't, they didn't learn anything from this. They didn't learn anything from this. And um, I, when he says there's fewer and fewer survivors of World War II and of the Holocaust, um, that should make doing your homework easier. Like, it should be easier to know who's who if very few of them are left. Uh, it's a... It's an amazing story, um, and it isn't really about, in my opinion at least, it really isn't about like the Waffen SS guy, who, by the way, must have been shocked. I mean, he imagine what's going through his mind. He's trying to figure out, well, I'm getting a standing ovation. Do they, what is going on here? You know, but this is really about the the kind of oversimplification that we do with so many things, and Canada's just like us in this regard. I mean, we do this too. We're doing it with Ukraine. We're doing it with the current government shutdown, supposed debate, uh, and, and so many other things. Oversimplifying, turning everything into black and white, and then you look ridiculous when there's any kind of a nuance or shade of gray, right? This is from Bloomberg News, so not some tinfoil hat conspiracy theory outfit. Bloomberg News says 94% of new corporate jobs go to non-white employees since 2020. And of course, 2020 would be a interesting year for that trend to have begun. 
Uh, after the murder of George Floyd, Bloomberg writes, companies adopted several practices to help hire and retain underrepresented workers, including establishing leadership development programs and training managers and in inclusive practices, getting better at identifying broader pools of job candidates, says Donald Knight from Greenhouse Software. 94% of new hires go to non-white candidates. So the first question you have to ask yourself is, do, do you believe that? I mean, that's just a, that, that is a almost cartoonish number. And I think I believe it. I mean, if, if you'd asked me to guess the percentage, I would not have guessed that high. I, I, I wouldn't have thought it was that high. But when I look at the quantity of guilt and fear and virtue signaling that has been stirred up by the, the race merchants in this country, and, I'm, and I'm, I'm not talking about somebody that has legitimately been wronged. I'm talking about people whose business, okay, whose business model is stoking, stirring, inflaming race and racism. They have worked very hard. They have worked very industriously. The 94% number says people whose job it was to scare and create a sense of collective guilt among white people have done a very good job. They've done a very good job. So first you ask yourself, could the 94% be right? I think it is. Then you ask yourself, is it a legitimate or appropriate response? Like, let's say we all kind of agree, maybe not to the same exact degree, but we could all imagine that in some fields and in some businesses and in some places in our economy, there was underrepresentation, and it was not always diabolical or intentional, but it was there. And so if our goal was to better represent everybody, was the response legitimate? Was the response proportionate? I've talked about this before, and I, and I you know, I, I hope it doesn't sound petty. But one, one way I knew we were overreacting to race was, and I just, this is a very casual, non-scientific thing, but when you watch television and you look at advertisements and the casting of advertisements, every product in America, every family using that product in every commercial is a non-white family you would not know or think that the country is 75 or 80% white. I, I'm not saying I want to see all white people in commercials. I don't. But you can tell everybody's trying too hard, everybody's virtue signaling too hard. You can tell. And then on top of that, you know that these companies are all vying for ESG scores and DEI ratings and that's not 
because their heart is in the right place or they've embraced the, the message of Martin Luther King at the Washington Monument, that's nothing more than wanting the alligator to eat you last. That is nothing more than being afraid of uh, or dodging or trying to fly under the radar of a movement or an ideology or a, a trend that you just don't want to have come after your company or your institution or your whatever it is. 94% of new jobs go to non-white candidates. And um, they even have a term for it. There's a term for when you are um, actively, openly trying to counterbalance a perceived imbalance. It's called excused racism. That is an amazing term when you think about it, because I thought racism was always, in all ways, bad. That the the idea of viewing people only by their race, the idea of weighting the, the merits or relative values of people by their race, I thought that was always a bad thing to do. I thought that was always wrong. I, I thought that principle was was exactly why, for example, the Canadians are horrified that they stood up and gave a standing ovation to some old dude they didn't know who he was. I mean, isn't the, the whole argument that it's never okay and we can't ever excuse it and we can't permit it, but now we're saying I need to do it for a while and you've got to let me do it with openness and a heavy hand but it's still bad. You just got to let me do it. It's an amazing number. And by amazing, I don't mean that you may not be surprised by it. And and there may even be, you may be listening to this right now going, look, I'm glad, Jack. I You don't understand. You're white. You don't understand. Um, for too long, people got passed over. People got overlooked. People got skipped. People couldn't get in the door. They couldn't get the interview. They couldn't get looked at. They weren't included in the review. Okay, okay, I, I get it. I, I, I know there are people out there who've had experiences I, I never had, did not have. 94%? Does that sound okay to you? Does that sound sustainable to you? 210-599-5555. I'll leave you with one more question. That's what happened, according to the study in Bloomberg. I don't know that anybody like made a decision. That's just what happened. That's the result of a bunch of decisions, right? A bunch of individual, small, little decisions. What if somebody had said four years ago, three years ago, hey, folks, uh, we've got a proposal this is something I'm going to propose that we do across the board, effective immediately, because we've had for too long an imbalance and an underrepresentation in certain companies, industries, workforces, boardrooms, what have you. I'm going to announce that it is our policy, and it will be the policy, and we're mandating the policy, 94% hiring. How would that have gone over? So you can say, well, now it's happened. It's water under the bridge. 
But what if you had proposed it to people? What if you had said, hey, this is something we need to look at. This is something we need to do. This is the answer. Yesterday we talked about how um, Target was closing a number of stores, and I think CVS, I, I don't know if we mentioned CVS or it's been in the news as well. They're also closing a bunch of stores. And with Target, they were explicit that they were closing stores in um, the following places, Portland, San Francisco, Seattle. And the reason is, um, and they're very, very clear about it, there is too much uh, shoplifting and crime in the stores and too much outside in the areas around the stores. Now, Target's a very blue company, right? Like very, very big-time libs. You know, they went through the whole pride thing this summer. They're more woke than even most woke companies. So now it's like they're dropping the other shoe without acknowledging the first one. When you are saying we're leaving these blue cities and we're leaving because crime is out of control and their statement was that theft was, quote, threatening the safety of our team and our guests and contributing to unsustainable business performance, what you are saying is the stuff that we're for, the values that we've been expressing and plumping for, don't work. It doesn't work when you do the things we say should be done, when you vote the way we say you should vote. It doesn't work. We, we can't, all, all, our, you know, our, all we're supposed to do is open stores, put stuff on shelves, and sell it to people. That's our business, period. That's all we do. And we can't do it in places where, if you will allow me to put it this way, Target got their way. So we're pulling out of blue cities because they're dangerous. Doesn't it seem like they skipped a couple of steps here? Like, wouldn't you want to maybe acknowledge that you'd been wrong to back defunding the police? And wouldn't you want to, I mean, wouldn't this be a moment to, as a retailer, I mean, I've seen businessmen and women do this. Wouldn't this be a moment to get behind law enforcement? Wouldn't this be a moment to say, we now realize how much we need, all of us, to back the blue. We need a law and order society. People need to be able to go from where they live to where they shop and back again with their stuff. That's basic. We took that for granted. And now we literally are closing stores. Now, the announcement from CVS was slightly different. Their announcement was we're closing hundreds of stores. And then they said for two reasons. But listen to this. One reason was crime and theft. And the other reason was, oh, well, people, um, people would really prefer to buy things online and order things online. And we're, we're uh, reflecting the preference of the consumer. So it's almost like CVS is is like a version of Target only in deeper denial. Because people didn't just suddenly start buying stuff online. 
You didn't just find out about that last week. And frankly, the kind of stuff you buy at a CVS or a Walgreens is usually not the stuff you buy online. It's it's incidentals. It's stuff that you realize you need while you're out and about. Oh, I don't have any chapstick or I need some aspirin. I'm going to buy it online. I'm going to order some chapstick online, you know. So what we have right here is a moment where reality is setting in but still in denial. It would really do this country some good if people who were super woke and reaped all the glory of that, right, did all the preening and virtue signaling and and they they you know they marched in all the parades and they showed up at the rallies and they ran all the all the virtue signaling ads that we had to endure nauseatingly for years. It would be really great if you could as part of this, you know, sort of meat and potatoes, gotta gotta respect the bottom line, gotta do business. It'd be really great if you just admit, well, you know what, we we do need laws and we do need an ordered society, we do need police. And it's to the detriment of everyone if we have to close brick-and-mortar businesses. I mean, I understand there are things going the online route. I understand there are certain things that will progressively be more and more online and less and less brick-and-mortar. But there's no disguising the fact that Target and CVS built a lot of stores, have been building, are still building stores. Some of these stores they're closing are new stores, brand-new stores. You weren't planning on this. This happened to you. And it didn't happen to you because you didn't get your wishes. It happened to you because you did get your wishes. You you actually got what you wanted. And now you're closing your stores. And you're admitting it's dangerous. You know, if I went out on the air and said, hey, blue cities are dangerous, you're a racist. You're That's a dog whistle for racism. You're just saying where black people live, it's not safe. No, I'm not. But that's what people would say. But Target says, we're only closing stores in blue cities. Oh, well, you know, it's too bad. I do think there are people, and I wrote a column about this yesterday. I, I, I do think there are people starting to think for themselves a little bit. You know, I, I'm not, I don't want to go, I don't want to go too far. I don't want to get too optimistic. Uh, but I do think people are rethinking. You know, it wasn't a column, actually. It was a video. I take that back. But anyway, uh, the gist of it was um, you're starting to see people realize they can't actually live under the values and conditions they claimed to 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 want or profess. And, and I do think that's happening. And I don't relish it or, or revel in it, but I guess it's a necessary thing. Like, you can't sit here in our part of the country and lecture People in California, they got to they got to go through it. They got to walk through it, live through it, suffer through it, and maybe rethink it. Announcements like Target and CVS are forcing them to do that. If you think about it, it's almost it's these kinds of announcements are all, all almost more important than anything a politician would say, because politicians mostly just talk. But it's it's like very real when you get in the car and you drive to your local Target and it's not there anymore. Now, guys.
Smokey Robinson is at number 10, and we have not heard the last about Smokey Robinson in this countdown, which brings us to number nine. The number nine hit this week in 1987 was John Mellencamp's Paper in Fire off his new album, The Lonesome Jubilee. John Mellencamp with a song he says is about an uncle of his who could be cruel to others and self-destructive, his Uncle Joe. John Mellencamp was just rocking out at this past Sunday's Farm Aid concert in Indiana at number nine with Paper in Fire. Well, I mentioned uh, we hadn't heard the last about Smokey Robinson. The song at number eight this week in the top ten from 1987 is a single from the British pop band ABC. It's a tribute to Smokey Robinson called When Smokey Sings. I thought it was amazing that this song would come out and be on the charts at the same time, be in the top ten at the same time as the Smokey Robinson song. What are the odds? No way you could plan that. Um, if you listen to the album version of When Smokey Sings, it's longer and has references to, pays tribute to a lot of other singers, Luther Vandross, uh, Marvin Gaye. Um, and if you also listen closely, the bass line of When Smokey Sings is pulled right out of 
Tears of a Clown. Smokey Robinson himself was asked at the time about this song, and he said, well, of course, it's a form of flattery, and I really appreciate it. Number eight, ABC, and when Smokey sings. Now, the song at number seven this week is the band Heart, a song written by legendary songwriter Diane Warren. Here's Who Will You Run To? Heart's big hit from this week in 1987, Who Will You Run To? Just a few days ago, Ann Wilson of Heart unveiled a new single from an upcoming album with her new band called Trip Sitter. So this is Ann Wilson's current day stuff. It's a song called This Is Now. Take a listen. Sounds good. Still sounds like Ann Wilson to me. Her current project, and at number seven this week in 1987 with the song Who Will You Run To? Well, off the double album Sign of the Times and featuring British singer Sheena Easton, here's Prince at number six with You Got the Look. Minnesota Twins fans excited to see his team ultimately on their way to the World Series this week in 1987. Prince and Sheena Easton, and you got the look. At number five this week in 1987, this is what they mean by a power ballad, Swedish rockers Europe, with a song called Carrie. Band Europe off their final countdown album with Carrie at number five this week in 1987. The British girl group Bananarama rocking it at number four with a song called I Heard a Rumor.
fun video on this song, too. They were all dressed up in different outfits and dancing around on a rotating stage and bloopers from the making of the video or intercut with the actual video. Just a fun summer driving song this week at number four for Bananarama. And I heard a rumor. On our way to number one, we're at number three this week in 1987. This song is going to be this band's second number one hit of the year after Head to Toe. This song's a tribute to Motown's Mary Wells. It's Lisa Lisa and Cult Jam with Lost in Emotion. Our friends across the pond are showing a lot of love for Motown this week. We had ABC back at number eight, singing uh, about Smokey Robinson. And right here, Lisa Lisa and Cult Jam. Lisa Velez says they were paying tribute to Mary Wells, particularly her two songs, Two Lovers and You Beat Me to the Punch. Lost in Emotion is at number three this week in 1987. Now, the song at number two this week is a song that actually was recorded more than once by the band who had a hit with this song. The British rock band Whitesnake originally released the song on their 1982 album, Saints and Sinners, re-recorded it as more of a power ballad for their Whitesnake album in 1987. This is the 87 version first of Here I Go Again. All right, White Snake from 87 with Here I Go Again. Here's how the same song sounded when they did it in Obviously, they added a little more power to the power ballad. They also changed a word. Originally, the lyrics had been drifter, but in 82, they sang that word as hobo. They changed it back to drifter in the re-recorded 1987 version, says David Coverdale, because they were afraid that hobo would sound like a slur word if people didn't hear the song closely. So this week at number two, here I go again, again for Whitesnake. And that brings us to this week's number one song for 1987 this week. Number one. It was their second studio album, Whitney. The song was written by powerhouse songwriters Michael Masser and Will Jennings. Originally, Whitney Houston's cover version of the Isley Brothers for The Love of You was going to be released as the second single from the album, but the record company decided it needed to be an original song, and it was a song that went to number one, stayed there for two weeks. Whitney Houston, didn't we almost have it all? Living on 
Well, fun fact about this song, the video for Didn't We Almost Have It All was a live performance uh, recorded at the Saratoga Performing Arts Center in Saratoga Springs, New York. It's a beautiful outdoor concert venue. I spent a lot of time there myself in the early 90s, and it was a great setting for Whitney to sing this song, a number one hit in 1987, the top song in the country this week in that year, Whitney Houston and Didn't We Almost Have It All. No, have you, uh, are you, do you know about our Jack Chat line? You need to know about this because this is going to be for people that listen to us as a podcast or if you are listening to the live show here in the afternoon on the radio but maybe not able to call in uh, because of work or being in and out of the car. Sometimes people say, you know, I, I think of something I wanted to say, but you had moved on to another topic. So here's what you do. 210-599-5550. 210-599-5550. You leave your first name, your city or town. You, you, you'll be prompted for all this. And whatever comment you want to make about whatever topic, every issue, any issue, uh, and we play those back, the Jack Chat line, 210 210- Five nine nine fifty five fifty. Somebody asked me, "Do you prefer that?" No, I don't. I I don't have any preference. I mean, you can call live. You can call the, the Jack Chat recording line. You can email me. I like them all. I like them all. The email address is Jack at KTSA dot com. But yeah, well, one way or another, I'm here. You can get to me. Uh, Two ten five nine nine fifty five uh, fifty five fifty five. Sorry, too many numbers. I had to chuckle. I knew this was coming. You knew it was coming, too. Uh, Governor Greg Abbott said yesterday that he will get to the bottom of Colony Ridge. He was interviewed by Dana, who's on this radio station later on in the evening. And uh, he said that he had serious concerns about Colony Ridge. We're trying to put together as much information as possible. Well, God, some dimwit on the radio that doesn't know anything talked about it for an hour. Put together information. See, I I know you love Abbott, and I'm not trying to be a meanie, but this is just BS. He knows about it. He knew about it. He didn't just find out about it from a national radio interview. He's one of the people that received campaign donations from the developer. He may not have known who the guy was, but, I mean, do you think anything's going to happen here? 70-square-mile subdivision of illegal immigrants near Houston. I I think the best thing that can come of this, and by all means, push back if you disagree, I think the best thing that can probably happen, I think I might have even said this the other day when we were talking about it, is if this becomes a an embarrassment for Texas and for the governor, then maybe you don't get more of more of it. Maybe. That, that might be the best thing. But as far as what you're going to do about it, you've got all these people on all these um, plats just squatting. You've got all these agencies that refuse to go and won't go, and we can't, we're not safe going. I don't know what you're going to do about that. I don't think you're going to do anything about it, to be honest. 
Question on the JR poll. Will you watch the GOP debate? The uh, seven Republicans that qualified for this debate are going to be on the stage at the Reagan Presidential Library in California tonight. And if you are doing something else, good for you. (laughs) I will watch it, and we will break it down here on the show tomorrow with my trusty partner in crime, Don Cooper, who's going to cut up and feature some sound bites. And I know this is exciting a night for you, Don, as it is for me. So, Oh, I can't wait. We're both, yes, we are both very excited on the inside, deep inside. So I'm just going to lay it out for you the way I see it, and I, it, let's, let's, let's talk this over for a few minutes. I mean, I'm not a Republican, but I'll probably vote in the Republican primary because the only reason I would vote in the Democratic primary would be if I thought there was a chance of putting somebody like RFK past Biden, which I don't think there is. So I'm probably going to vote in the Republican primary. So Republicans, you'll have me in your primary. Let me tell you what I'm not interested in tonight. I am not interested in hearing these people uh, kind of like backbite and backstab each other. Like, it's so predictable that they're going to go after DeSantis, and now probably also Haley because she came up in the polls after the last debate. And I'm not saying that nobody should speak ill of them, and I'm sure they can fight their own battles. Haley... DeSantis, these are all people that can speak for themselves, but I'm just not interested in it. I'm not, the country's going to hell, okay? We have the worst president we've ever had. We have one of the worst people I have ever seen as president. I mean, we're beyond whether or not Biden is a bad president. He's not a good person, okay? The 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 entire um, sort of spectacle of him flying to the UAW strike in Detroit Okay, huge carbon footprint, Air Force One, motorcade, to spend 12 minutes talking through a blowhorn, a bullhorn, bullhorn, pardon me, um, claiming he's been walking picket lines since 73, yet another total fabrication, not even remotely true. And the reason the UAW workers are on strike is because the push for EVs is putting them out of their jobs. So, Joe, they don't need you on the picket line. They need you to go back to Washington and tell uh, Secretary Pete and Secretary Jen and this other all-star team that you've put together, like they're doing in the U.K. and E.U., hey, hit the brakes, don't tap them, slam them on the EV thing because it's putting people out of cars, it's putting people out of work, we're mandating vehicles that the companies don't want to build, the auto workers don't want to assemble, and the consumers don't want to buy. If you wanted to help them, Joe, you could do that now, today. The last thing they needed was to spend 10 minutes with you on the sidewalk, but that's what he did. So getting back to the debate, I'm just not interested in these guys picking on and, and, and you know, gotcha-ing each other. Are you? I mean, is that... Is that entertaining to you? Oh, wow, what a zinger on Ramaswamy. You know, I I don't care. I don't care. I don't want Biden as president after next year. And I'm, I believe there are at least three or four of these Republicans that could beat Biden. Beat him. I think Trump could beat him. I think DeSantis could beat him. I think Haley could beat him. I even think Ramaswamy could probably beat him. I would rather hear them talk about 
and show me that they know about us. I don't care how they feel about each other or there's bad blood or I never did like you. I don't care. This isn't high school. We're not in the calf. You know, it's not mean girls. I don't care. I don't know who does. I've never met anyone that that thought that was useful. Would you look at the personality conflict between those two? Wow. I'm going to call all my friends to make sure they're watching Fox Business Network. No, nobody cares. Show us that you are in touch with we the people. Show us that you understand how the policies coming out of Washington are affecting us at our dinner tables, in our schools and classrooms and workplaces, streets. Because the guy in charge right now doesn't get it at all. He's totally tuned out, no clue. He's calling black men boy. I'm not sure what decade or century Joe Biden is even from. I would like to hear somebody that's connected and in touch right now. Speaking of speaking ill, the media today, have they've played this clip 10,000 times. I'm going to promise you we're not going to play it. But there's a clip out there of Ronald Reagan, because they're at the Reagan Library tonight. And Ronald Reagan actually said, and it was way before he ran for president, he said it when he was running the first time he ran for governor of California. So he's out there on the campaign trail, and he sort of jokingly said, the 11th commandment should be, Thou shalt not speak ill of any fellow Republican. And Reagan heeded his own commandment. It was rare throughout his campaigns for governor and president that he attacked other Republicans. He ran against them, and they ran against him uh, spiritedly. Uh, but you have to remember that when Reagan was running in 1966, that was his first political campaign in which he was a candidate. He had campaigned for people before, but that was the first time he had run for something as a candidate. And he had just recently switched parties. He had been a Democrat. So he was being attacked and being called names and carpetbagger and all this other stuff, and the idea being that he wasn't... he. He was sort of not sure of what he believed in or, or, or settled on what he stood for. And he was basically saying, I just don't believe in returning the fire or speaking ill of other Republicans. I will say that it's a nice sentiment. It's probably not as useful today as it was in Reagan's time, because I don't know what Republican, when it's used in the sense of the Republican Party, I don't know what that means anymore. Like, I don't know what that stands for, and neither do they. It's a brand without a brand definition. You can be a Republican and be a lot of things. You can be a Republican and stand for a lot of different things, including things I might really like and things I might really abhor. 
So if it was a cohesive set of ideas and anybody with an R after their name could be reliably associated with those ideas, that would be a lovely thought. But that's not how things are. That's not how things work. The other interesting thing about Reagan is um, Reagan showed over the course of his career that he was he was actually very confident in and had a very defined worldview, right? And I think when you know exactly who you are and what you are, you can kind of um, rule out the personal combativeness stuff. I don't think too many people today in politics are like that. I'm not saying none of them are. But I think the personal comes in because the the worldview stuff is kind of hazy. We're just in a time when people are making it up as they go along. You know, I'm figuring out what the right thing to do is about this and about that as it comes at me. And I, I don't think these people on the stage tonight are Reagan, any of them. Thoughts on that, 210-599-5555. Uh, we were talking about uh, Trump earlier. I see a parallel between Trump and Menendez. Now, don't get mad at me. I'm going to explain it. Um, Trump is an insider. Trump has always been in with the in crowd. He is, you know, sort of acquainted with all the elites in this country. He He has met, he has shaken hands, he has broken bread with the top people in the culture. You would not know it to hear them talk about him now. Worse than Hitler. But the facts are the facts. You can Google it. You can look at pictures. He's been at their weddings. They've been at his weddings. He's um, partied with them. He's vacationed with them. They've golfed at his clubs. They've endorsed his books and products. He has been on their networks and shows over the decades. The whole reason... Trump is so frightening to the elites in this country is not because they don't know him, but because they do know him, and he knows them. And he has both threatened and made good on the threat to expose them, to show how things really work. He called out Hillary on on the debate stage. He said, you'll never change the tax code because you benefit from it and your donors benefit from it just as much as I do. And You can't call me out and say, I don't pay taxes. You and your supporters do everything you can to take advantage of the tax code, just like I do, and if you didn't, you'd be dumb. I'm paraphrasing, but that's what he said. So the whole thing about Trump and the the panic that he he, um, generates has to do with that sort of first rule of fight club thing. Trump's dangerous because he knows stuff that only the elites know, except that he's hanging out with us and telling us about it. This is what really happens with campaign finance and taxes and trade, and you ought to know that the the people that complain about it and and claim to be reforming it or opposed to it are really benefiting from it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Very scary. Now, I see a little of this with the reaction to Menendez. Senator Menendez of New Jersey, as you know, is being called upon by a growing number of Democratic politicians. He is a Democrat. Uh, They're calling on him to resign. You must resign. You must step down. 
This is very serious. They're acting, first of all, they're acting like they didn't know Bob Menendez was a crook. If they all knew him so well and worked with him for so long, they knew it. Secondly, maybe they're a little afraid of Bob Menendez. I know that Menendez's political uh, fortunes are not heading in the same direction as Trump's. Trump might be president again. Menendez is never going to be president. But what if you're Bob Menendez and you're watching all of your former friends and allies stab you in the back, and they've got you on the gold bars and the envelopes full of cash anyway? Your life is over. What if he decides to start naming names and pointing fingers on his way down to the bottom? The same people that Trump frightens are going through another round of fear right now. What if this guy Menendez talks? And all I can say about this is um, the last time there was a guy who was in big legal trouble and ultimately was taken into custody and who knew names and places and where bodies were buried, et cetera, et cetera. Last time we had a guy like that, that guy mysteriously killed himself in his cell. Just saying. I, I, to me, what's more important when you look at questions and surveys and opinion polls, approval of people, opinion of people, I uh, disapprove of Biden or I approve of this one, not that important. Let's, lo- let's talk about what people are grappling with, are dealing with. Let's talk about what's afflicting and affecting us. And then let's talk about how much of that is the result of the government. We're all grown-ups. We can all deal with adversity. But we look at our country and we see a, a federal government that seems to be putting us at the bottom of the list of priorities, if we're even on the list. We, we talked earlier about the fact that the United States is guaranteeing and paying all the salaries for Ukrainian national infrastructure. We are literally not paying our own bills, funding our own government, but we're funding theirs. So I don't want to hear about the differences between Ramaswamy and Haley. I could give a flip. They had damn well better be talking about stuff like that. How dare you come before the American people who are having trouble affording prescription drugs and food and gasoline, who are sick and tired of the crap being poured into the heads of their children by schools we pay dearly for. You're backing what is essentially our 51st state, to the hilt, people in Maui getting the back of the hand, people in Palestine, Ohio, back of the hand. We don't want a 10-minute photo op with the auto workers. We want gasoline-powered cars we can afford built in this country and built so well and so competitively that not only do we buy them, but then we build them to export to other countries. We had that. We were doing that. It wasn't 50 or 75 years ago. We should still be doing it. That's what you need to talk about. Um, 
I think the Republicans could beat Biden with any one of several people, but they may not beat him with any of them if they don't get serious about the stuff we're talking about here and also about election integrity itself. I'm still not hearing any plan, and I hope there's a question about this tonight, but I'm not going to hold my breath. I'm still not hearing any plan from the Republican execs leadership about things like ballot harvesting, early voting, taking advantage of the rules that you have allowed to supplant the old rules. I mean, if if there's new rules to the game of electioneering, you guys need to play them to the hilt. What do you think? 210-599-5555. One of the big uh, headlines today uh, was about the fact that I guess some $250,000 in wired-in money came from Beijing to Hunter Biden. And the wires were sent to the Delaware home address of Joe Biden. So to the Republicans, that looks like Joe Biden was the beneficiary of, the recipient of, the Chinese funds, to the Democrats, it's like, oh, no, no, um, he just used his father's address because he was staying with him. Okay. I, I, I don't know who you could get to believe the latter version. I mean, m- maybe Joe Biden didn't get this money. Maybe he didn't. But why... If you're Hunter Biden and you have your own home, why would you have the money wired to the home of a guy who is running for president? Who you love? Who describes you as the smartest man he's ever met? So there's either all kinds of evidence here or there's all kinds of coincidence. I think you just have to decide how you feel about it. I won't tell you what to think. When they say there's not a shred of evidence, the defenders of President Biden, there's not a shred of evidence. Well, okay, well, then there's a massive amount of coincidence. Could you comment on that at all? 210-599-5555. Oh, this is interesting. Have you heard... You know, of course, if you're at all any kind of a sports fan, you know, one of the big uh, stories, storylines, was that um, the very beginning of the NFL season, in the very first game, in the very first set of downs, the new highly touted veteran quarterback for the New York Jets, Aaron Rodgers, went down with a season-ending injury. And the Jets are in free fall. So anyway, have you heard this? Colin Kaepernick wrote a letter to the Jets. Colin Kaepernick has a proposal for the Jets. I'm in a quicksand and I'm starting to sing. I need someone to help me, but I don't know which way to KTSA coming up, results on the JR poll, powered by River City Oral Surgery. So Colin Kaepernick is back in the news. The uh, 
former NFL quarterback who um, became an activist and um, then uh, I think both uh, engineered and and sort of re-engineered his own downfall from professional football and then turned the fact that nobody would sign him into sort of a cause. So he he sort of turned the fact that he felt he was being, you know, um, blocked or conspired against by NFL owners into a very lucrative sort of race industry business. He writes a letter to the New York Jets saying, put me on your practice squad. The letter reads in part, it was released by a representative of Colin Kaepernick, so it's not some sort of leak or anything. He wanted people to know he wrote it. And it reads in part, uh, it's, it's addressed to the general manager of the Jets, I hope this letter finds you in great spirits despite the less than ideal start to your big season. I wish you, your staff, and the players a great game this weekend as you look to bounce back. I'm writing, of course, in response to the unfortunate loss of Aaron Rodgers. And he goes on to talk about what a big set of shoes Rodgers leaves and uh Obviously, you want to keep the team on a Super Bowl trajectory. I wish Zach Wilson well. Zach Wilson is the, the backup who's now starting for the Jets. Says nice things about Zach Wilson, which not too many people are saying nice things about him right now. However, I know there are currently depth issues at the position. Yeah, we don't. Uh, that's one way of putting it. And I've heard, he writes, that the backup spot is likely to be filled by a veteran quarterback. Uh, as much as I would love the opportunity to fill that spot, I'm writing you in hopes that you can imagine a much different approach involving me. And then he goes into some particulars and some recommendations. He has some ideas about the team. It's a thoughtful letter. It's a thoughtful letter. And he says, um, I would be honored if you would put me on the practice squad. That way I could fine-tune your defense because the practice squad quarterback is the one that works out the D. So I, I could help you with your defense. And either Zach Wilson finds his stride and leads you to the Super Bowl, or I represent a risk-free contingency plan. So if you didn't know anything about Colin Kaepernick, you'd think, what a guy. I mean, he's done all this thinking and analysis about the Jets. As far as I know, I, I may be missing something. I don't think Colin Kaepernick has like a, a media position where he'd be like, you know, like these guys that are on ESPN and Fox every week and they're, you know, doing game analysis. Like you expect them to have a lot of takes. Kaepernick sounds like a guy that's thought about this, knows the players, knows the, the personnel. This is not a franchise he ever was associated with. So if you didn't know anything about him, you'd think this is a very interesting and thoughtful business proposal. But we do know who Colin Kaepernick is. And Colin Kaepernick is the guy who, not so long ago, said that playing in the NFL is akin to slavery. Said this on a Netflix special that Netflix gave him a platform they provided him over which he had total creative control. It was called Colin in Black and White. He told his life story. 
He talked extensively about his social justice positions. And he took the position, which is not uniquely his, by the way. Other people have said it. They've said it about college football. South Park did a hilarious bit on how you know um, college football players are slaves. And people have said it about professional football as well, that the owners, even the terminology, right, the team owners are like slave owners. Now, we talked about this at the time. I disagree. And I think it does a disservice to and a distortion of slavery, as we know it, as we understand the historical record of it, to liken guys that are paid tens of millions of dollars to play a game once a week for part of the year who receive the best medical care, the best nutrition, the best fitness and training, the best everything, to even hint, to even go near the comparison to slavery is both um, obscene as it regards slavery also seems sort of, I don't know, ungrateful or ungracious about where you find yourself. So it's interesting, right? Like which one of these, I was thinking about this today, which one of these is the real Kaepernick? I mean, think about how conflicted you'd have to be to be begging your way back into the NFL but to have just described the NFL, and I don't mean like 20 years ago when you were a young man. I mean just recently to have described it as slavery. So does he believe both? He can't. It's not possible. Which one is him? Who's in there, Colin? And I say this, and I don't mean it, I mean it sincerely. I, I am pretty sure one of these two guys is the real Colin Kaepernick. One of them loves football so much, he's angling for an improbable path in. And the other one is so married to his social justice crackpot theories that he thinks the NFL is roots. And it's, it's sad. By the way, I've always thought that... Um, and it's becoming less likely as, as time goes on. Um, but I've always thought that there would eventually be a um, what-have-we-got-to-lose franchise that would put him back on the field. I, I still don't think it's... I, I think we're approaching the edge of the envelope where it'll be too many years away from the game and too much will have changed and your body changes. And I, I hear that he works out and stays in shape, but... I also know from, from listening to athletes that um, after X number of years where you're not in the system, all the working out and, you know, regimens and stuff that you have, it just, it's not the same, you know. The, again, those guys live in a different world. They are um, living, being medically treated, being fed. It's just a totally different way, you know, it's, and so if you're out of that routine, if you're out of that culture, you're probably, after X number of years, there's no way to get back in. So anyway, we'll see.
Um, but yeah, it's just, just the letter alone from Colin Kaepernick sounds like a sounds like a guy you'd want to have a conversation with. Hey, he could help our team. All right, on the JR poll, powered by River City Oral Surgery, will you watch the GOP debate tonight? 82% said no. 18% said yes. Well, a new question tomorrow. We get started at 4, powered by River City Oral Surgery. You can always find the JR poll at KTSA.com. So we told you what um, Colin Kaepernick is trying to do to get back into professional football. Tyreek Hill of the Miami Dolphins is setting the world on fire right now. The Dolphins just hung 70 on the Broncos this past weekend. This guy is running like crazy. He's got a lot of football left in him. But even now, Tyreek Hill says he's thinking about the future. I mean, he can't do this forever. What would he like to do after football? Well, he said it on a podcast. Take a listen to this. When you retire, you're doing, you're going to be all over, huh? You're going to be on TV, everything. Huh? Nah, when I retire, bro, I really want to be a porn star, though, bro. Like, dead serious. Like, you, you think I got that? No? <laughs> nah, I mean, do whatever you want, bro. I ain't, you know, I don't got an opinion on that. Yeah, he's talking to Mike Evans, and, I mean, it's, he's speechless. He's just, that is the, that's the deadest dead air you've ever heard. What do you want to do? I want to be a porn star. I had, I had to shorten the dead air because it was a little longer than that, actually. What, what do you say to him? I mean, what do you say to your buddy when he says that? You know, yesterday we were talking about should you tell your buddy if you think he's making a mistake with who he's dating, but what do you say to that? And Mike Evans says, well, whatever you want, bro. <laughs> You retire, you doing oh. you gonna be all over the huh? You'll be on TV, everything. Huh? Nah, when I retire, bro, I really wanna be a porn star though, bro. Like dead serious. Like you, you think I got that? No? I don't think I like being nah, asked I mean, you think I got that too. Like, um What are you really asking me there? You know? Like Do I have it in me? I mean, it's just not a, it's not, not only is it not a career choice I want to endorse, but I don't really want to have an opinion about your attributes there, uh, Magic Mike. All right. So. Anyway, we wish Tyreek Hill well, and now I hope his NFL career really lasts a long, long time. Well, we were digging back into the year 1987 today. We counted down the top 10 from this week. It included at number five, Carry by Europe. I heard a rumor by Bananarama was number four. Lisa Lisa is at number three with Lost in Emotion. The band Whitesnake had the number two hit with Here I Go Again. And Whitney Houston had the number one song this week in 1987 and became the first woman in music history to debut at number one on the album chart. The first artist to ever enter number one in the U.S. and U.K. while also hitting number one or top ten in dozens of other countries. This album's first single was I Want to Dance with Somebody Who Loves Me. It had come out uh, earlier in the year. It was a massive hit worldwide. And then three more singles, Didn't We, have, didn't we Almost Have It All, So Emotional, and Where Do Broken Hearts Go, all went to number one. And that meant that Whitney Houston became the first recording artist in history to earn seven consecutive number one hits. The previous record was six. It was held by the Beatles 
and the Bee Gees. And it's this song that did it, and we're going to leave it with you tonight. The number one song all across the country, all across the world this week in 1987 was Whitney Houston's Didn't We Almost Have It All. Have a good night. Take the night into the